thank you for this day, for um, our class, for this, uh, uh, for this hour, Lord. We pray that you would come, be with us and before us, be in a particular way with Becky and Wes, um, even now that you would be with them um, through their, uh, their delivery. Uh, uh, help, Lord. Our needs are great, but thankfully your mercy is greater. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the fourth of five classes on this uh, little soiree through the first five chapters of John. Um, uh, we're in John 4. Um, I thought we'd go ahead and read it to start with. It's really my own sort of way of making sure that I actually deal with the most important thing that we can deal with, and that's the actual scripture itself. Uh, it's interesting. I'm connecting. I never really connected this before. It's really good to see you, Sean. Um, uh, the end of John 2, where Jesus says, or actually John says about Jesus, uh, and Jesus did not entrust himself to anybody, for he knew what was in the heart of man. Um, for Jesus did not entrust himself to anybody, for he knew what was in the heart of man. And then John, one of the unique things about the Gospel of John compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do it some. John goes into these... Uh, really in-depth descriptions of some of the incidents with Jesus or some interactions that Jesus has with people. Um, and so we hear in, in, in John 2, which I always thought was just sort of dicta, just sort of this word that he threw out. And I really think it's the preface to John 3, 4, and 5, in some degree 6, uh, where we now zoom in, as it were, and have some pretty expanded views. We sort of climb in uh, in Google Earth and get really, really close to his interaction with Nicodemus, um, which we looked at last week. Nicodemus, a well-educated um, senator, so to speak, a member of the Sanhedrin, um, a Jew of the Jews. Uh, and now, in the absolute contrast to that, if you had to think of somebody who was the opposite side of the spectrum, the man with all the power, prestige, wealth, position, authority, uh, here we have the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, that he meets at a well. Um, the Samaritan woman who'd been married five times previously. We don't know what happened to his four, her four previous husbands, probably something like uh, divorce and or death. And now she's living with a man who is not her husband. We learned that as well. Um, so it's a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were mestizos, um, sort of a mix between Jew and Gentile um, over the years. Uh, uh, the, the Samaritans, and geographically you would see this, there was sort of Judea, and then there was all of, uh, of, uh, of, the, of the Gentile lands, and then the ring between those, as you would guess, uh, there was a, a mestizos, a mix of uh, people um, as they, throughout the generations, um, had children, and it wasn't a true Jewish blood, but not a true Gentile blood, and so they were equally despised kind of by all people. Um, and uh, we hear that, that Jews did not have any interactions with Samaritans. More specifically, they didn't have any, any, uh, any religious um, interactions with Samaritans because by their very definition now, their blood was tainted. And so to have any um, familial or religio-social interaction with them beyond just sort of going to buy you know, coffee from them or something like that, uh, was forbidden. It was it was absolutely forbidden. I was supposed to be forbidden, verboten, but it came out forbidden. So there it is. Um, uh, so we have the contrast of all the power, prestige in the world, uh, in the world's terms, to the woman who would be you know sort of absolutely at the bottom of the barrel. 
Um, and this is John 4. Uh, actually, the first part of it. So now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and, and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw your water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water, I, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to, her, said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So it's long. It's hard to hear a narrative like that out loud, and it goes on. It's a long narrative. Like I said, it really kind of zooms in. You pick apart in very sort of dense ways some interactions with people. Uh, so I'm going to keep all that in the, uh, in the foreground and now move out behind this. What have we been doing um, last few weeks? Trying to find this way into a... Uh, into a title of a class, really. <laughs> That's what we've been doing. My own personal Jesus, with the idea being that the Jesus that we think, quote-unquote, that we need, the stories we tell ourselves about our condition, about our needs, our problems, our fears, will dictate to us the Jesus, the salvation, the deliverance, the redemption that we think we need. Sometimes that and reality don't overlap. Sometimes those don't mesh very well. Sometimes the Jesus that we think we need creates a Moses, a new Moses, a Moses that isn't really the actual Moses, and so we have new laws, as it were, given to us that we place in ourselves to create a 
way to make sense of what we call reality, and it's not really reality. And so I thought of another quote um, that helps to illustrate this. This is one that we bring out here a lot in shorthand to describe much of what um, uh, uh, much, of much of what I've been trying to, to, to lean into the last several weeks. This comes from Ashley Null, close friend of the Advent. Um, uh, you know, we, we speak in hyperbola a lot, um, but really it is no exaggeration to say most likely he or Deirdre Nicola would be, uh, either one of them would be the world's foremost scholar on Thomas Cramner. And this is um, in Ashley's really sort of gifted way, I think this was given to him by God, is the way that he would summarize the anthropology of Thomas Cramner, sort of the genius of Anglicanism. What the heart loves the will chooses and the mind justifies. And then he goes on to say, the mind is captive to the will, just as the will itself is captive to the heart. And so this is a laden, a very pregnant phrase that has all sorts of, of, of permutations and all sorts of different um, areas. So I was mentioning some people coming in before. Um, one way we can think about this uh, uh, in sort of the secular world is in psychology. Um, just the study of what makes humans human. Um, it's psychology in a secular way which asks some of the same questions, not all, but some of the same questions that theology does. Um, what does it mean to be a human being? What exactly is the nature and reality of love? Um, what happens when you're in relationship with another person? Um, how do we become who we become? Uh, what does it mean to be? You know, those are some questions that, that, that psychology also wants to ask. And here, um, we hear what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The mind makes these stories, these justifications, these rationalizations, these, these narratives which describe the will, that part of us that we're vaguely aware of, uh, that, uh, that we may or may not, and of course there's all sorts of ink that's spilled over this, and it's one of the great divides in some ways in Christendom, uh, over whether or not we have a free will or a bound will, that kind of thing. But to see that actually misses, or to get cut up there in that sort of feedback loop is to miss the boat, because it's an issue of the heart. You know, Robert Smith, great preacher at Beeson, I love it when he says, and of course he can speak it in a way that I can't, says, we must always think cardiologically, <laughs> which is to think we must always think about the heart, cardio, the heart, um, uh, what the heart loves. And we looked at it last week very briefly, but, but the prophet Ezekiel, of course, sees that. It's not an issue of what we're choosing. It's not an issue of the stories that we tell. Uh, it's not an issue of, of anything on the surface. Our situation is dire. Our situation is one of the heart. Um, that's what the Bible, and psychology, and philosophy, and theology, just, just what we as human beings would describe as sort of the center of who we are. Who makes us us? What makes me me? Whatever that is, call it the heart, the core, um, the soul, uh, the, the seat of being. That's what we're talking about. That part, that's the issue. What the heart loves, then all the fruit grows out of that. And so what happens here? Um, Going back to uh, uh, the very beginning, we think of, um, of Adam and Eve, where they had this closeness with God in the garden. I think of Johnny Cash singing on the Apostle, I come to the garden alone, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own. Um, 
that nearness, that unbroken uh, closeness, that proximity to God that we all had has now been absolutely destroyed. And, then, and this is something that's going to be repetitious. Uh, I've shown this several of my classes. Uh, one of my favorite paintings. Um, I didn't realize this class is going to be sort of an art class, but it's been a nice way to sort of describe some of these things. This is a, an Italian artist I know nothing about. And it's known as the last name, Masaccio, um, in 1425. But, but that's the, uh, the cherubim, one of the angels, one of the, 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 the orders of angels that's guarding the way back to the garden. But obviously this is Adam and Eve upon their expulsion of the garden. Let me go ahead and turn the lights off. Um, I find it to be one of the most um, evocative paintings that's, that I'm really aware of. Um, to me, it really is, uh, is massively descriptive. I mean, here's Adam on the left and Eve on the right with such pain, such fragmentation, such such uh, obvious suffering where that closeness, that nearness, that proximity, that, that, that union has been now been forever broken. And you can just feel the weight that they have. And even more than that, and this is what I noticed recently, which is why I'm bringing this back. Um, I never noticed before how it's not incidental what each are doing. Um, what's Adam? How is he covering himself? And how is that different from Eve? Adam, of course, is covering his eyes, and Eve is covering her nakedness. This is all a description of shame, um, the, the, and, and that's not even a guess. I mean, Genesis 3 says it, and they, you know, contrasting to Genesis 2, they were naked and not ashamed, and now shame has, uh, that's what we describe, this, this sense of, uh, of defectiveness. And uh, Adam, I cannot bear to see it. Eve, I cannot bear to be seen. And that shame, I cannot bear to see it or be seen. And though I think there's a man-woman thing here that we could say that men of Adam and, and, and women of Eve can tend towards this. I mean, human nature connects with both of these, that it is my shame now that I carry, your shame that you carry. Uh, I cannot bear to see it or be seen. This is that operating principle, that operating system, that orienting principle, that, um, that lens. That's the language that I've used in the last several weeks looking around. I think most here have come other weeks, and so just carrying over some language week to week. Uh, this is the lens, which we call original sin, um, that we carry in us generation to generation, much less minute to minute, uh, that, that describes now... Um, what Romans 3 says in such horrific terms, that no one seeks for God. That's also something I sort of taught myself this week. Uh, gosh, I've always thought that all this, we've been you know, seeking after God and looking for God and all that, and that's not true, really. It's not a biblical idea. Uh, no one seeks for God as we've been expelled from the garden, and that, 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 that brokenness has been so entrenched through our shame that I can't bear to see or be seen. I can't bear to see what I've done. Oh my God, what have I done? And I can't bear to be seen. Please, don't, don't, don't look at me. Let, me. let me block something. Let me distract you with something else because I cannot bear this weight. That what that means is I don't seek for God. Now I seek the fruit 
of what we, those of us who have been drawn into union with him, um, in the passive tense, what we know as peace, contentment, joy, uh, restoration, redemption, deliverance. Uh, that's what we know is the fruit of being sought by God, being apprehended by God, being taken by God. But we don't seek God. People don't seek God. We seek relief. <laughs> we seek relief from this. We can't stand God. Uh, we just don't want to bear this weight, this burden, this heaviness, this grief. Um, that's gonna, we're going to see that in the woman at the well of Samaria. But before we do, um, again, repetition here. Uh, one no less than Louis C.K., um, this great thing that he did a couple of years ago on Conan O'Brien about, uh, about why he hates cell phones, why he's something very close to us right now, in fact, um, of, uh, of why he doesn't want his daughters to have cell phones. Um, it was on Conan O'Brien, a little bit of a forewarning. It's about three and a half minutes, and I'm going to cut it off a little bit early because, because he, his language, although they bleep it out, it's a little bit salty, saltier than I think we need to have here, but there's still going to be some places where it's probably a little bit off color, just his way. But he's going to describe what I think is uh, this. It's Adam and Eve displaced and expelled from the garden, and now that is original to us. It is sewn into our DNA. He's going to call it the forever empty. <laughs> On Conan O'Brien, Louis C.K. is talking about, you know that forever empty that we all have? Um, uh, when, we, when, we, when we get below the surface, below what the mind is justifying, uh, you know that forever empty that we all have that sometimes gets pricked by a Springsteen song, that's what you know, the context here, Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen, or a hymn, you know, why do I always cry at Easter? It's not real hard to see. Uh, or a sermon that you feel like is preached just for you. You've walked out saying, I mean, how did he know? How did he know? It's like the wall was removed and there was this direct access. Um, I mean, it's like he was in our house last night listening to what we were doing. Or maybe it's something a lot, uh, you know, less erudite. And it's, you know, sort of the canned moment. And I'm going to my Lee here. This would have been, um, uh, oh, who did like the Breakfast Club and all them in our generation? Who was the director for that? What's that? John Hughes. Yeah, now maybe Seth Rogen. Whatever the canned part for John Hughes or Seth Rogen, you know, that part of the movie. It's like, oh, and you find yourself almost crying, if not outright crying. You know, it's that forever empty that's right beneath of all of this. Um, I'm going to try to connect us with that with a little bit of Louis C.K. Um, and this is to have a little bit of Brett levity here, too. The other stupid kids have phones. It doesn't mean that, okay, well, my kid has to be stupid, otherwise she'll feel weird. Right. You know, I, I think these things are toxic, I don't, especially for kids. It's just this thing. It's bad. And I, they don't look at people when they talk to them, and they don't build the empathy. You know, kids are mean. And it's because they're trying it out. They, they look at the kid and they go, you're fat. And then they see the kid's face scrunch up and they go, ooh, that doesn't feel good to make a person do that. Right. But they but they got to start with doing the mean thing. But when they write you're fat, then they just go, mmm, I mean, that was fun. I like that. <laughs> 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 that tastes good. Yeah, exactly. You need...
the thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones are taking away. Yes. Is the ability to just sit there. Like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they gotta, uh, you gotta check. Because, they, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing that is forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? That's, yes. Yes. Yes, I know. Yes, 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 acknowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes. That I am alone, like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. <laughs> and they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own, because they don't want to be alone for a second. Because it's so hard. I was in my car one time, and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on. And it made me really sad. It's like Jungle, what's the one? Jungle, jungle, jungle Land. Jungle, that's one where he goes, hey, and he sounds far away. Conan had to get in there, you know. So. Can you do it with the reverb? Can you do it? No, they're not doing it. They're not Except for it was Springsteen. If it was you doing that, I would have been like, what the hell is that in my <laughs> I did it just the same yes. Bruce. And I heard it, and it gave me kind of like a fall back to school depression feeling. It made me really sad. Yeah. And I go, okay, I'm getting sad. I've got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. And then, you know, somebody cool writes back, and then somebody not as cool writes after, and I'm like, oh, f*** you, I'm not going <laughs> to... Uh, hey, how come you didn't answer my text? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> so, anyway, I started to get that sad feeling. I was reaching for the phone and I said, you know what, don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. So just be sad. Let it... Let it hit you like a truck, let it just come and overtake you. And he goes on to describe uh, doing that, pulling over, kind of let this wave of sadness hit, and then and it hit him. Uh, and then he said, I was, now in, you know, this is definitely my language and not his, and then this very strange experience of happiness right on top of the sadness came, and simultaneously, someone used to say peccator is how we describe this, uh, simultaneously, he knew what it meant to be a human being. He knew that already in that not yet, that place of deliverance between point A and point B, that he was already there as he was given this sense of, of what he said was happiness. But I would say it's the opposite of this, of restoration, of redemption, of wholeness, uh, and yet still very much in touch with a deep and profound sadness that that forever empty, that grief, that heaviness, that weight, that shame of, oh my God, oh my God.
what have I done? What have I done? I can't bear to see what I've done. I can't bear to be seen. And this plays out in a lot of different ways. Um, we form um, sort of clinical language you call these models, internal working models. Um, but just another way of putting it, we form this grid. We form a voice to make sense of our life that lets us live somehow moment to moment in the midst of all this distress. And, and where's the scene? Of course in relationships. What does it mean to be a human being? It means to be in relationship with another. We are made in the image of God um, who exists within himself in relationship. It means human beings exist in relationship to another. And so this distress, this forever empty, this is a primal scream, as it were, of um, a protest of disconnection, of not being in proper relationship, not being proximity, not being reachable to another, not able to reach another, not being visible to another, not being able to be seen by another. And at once we want to hold it off, and yet I dare hope that it would come. And so here comes the gospel. Here comes John 4. Let me find an exit. Where that once, that hold off, but, oh my God, could it be? Could it be? Could it be? But this man who told me everything I ever did, who knew me so through with an x-ray that no one has ever known and still loved me, that's the experience of the Samaritan woman at the well where she goes back to her people and says, you've got to come and meet the one. I've met the Messiah. He told me everything I ever did, and he still talked to me. He still, he saw me, and he loved me anyway. And it's the gospel. And so let's go back into the scripture and just hear this again. Not the whole thing, but the, uh, the parts where she sort of tips her hand. And then I'll leave some time for, um, for a couple of feedback. Um, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? There's this play, this living water. On one hand, they would have described that any, any of the water, as opposed to dead, stagnant water, which you wouldn't want to drink. I mean, you're hiking with Joe next week. You don't want to drink that. You're going to filter anyway. But living water, moving water, water that's pure, water that's, that's, that's potable, that we can have. But, of course, there's a lot more to it, which John plays out in, in full in John 6 and 7. Uh, the water where, when you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. There's a double entendre that he intends there, and he begins to play that out. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank it for himself, as did his sons and livestock. That well is still there, I'm told. 4,000 years old, same well that Jacob dug. Uh, and Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of that water, uh, I will give it, and he will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so now suddenly that's the Springsteen word for her. That water will become a spring in you, which will spring up to eternal life. And at once this and this starts to happen. For she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. That's the human. But here's the telling part. If I had to be the analyst for her, this is where I would leap in. Or have to come here to draw water. Because that's her eve. Do you know how hard it is to come here every day at noon? It's in the heat of the day, 12 o'clock. Why do I come here at noon? When all the other women come either at 6 a.m. or at 6 p.m. Of course, when it's cool and when they can all talk 
and be together, be in community, but not me. No, that's not for me because because the secret that I'm carrying, you know, I'm living with a man who's not my husband and I've had five others and I'm absolutely the pariah, the bottom of the barrel, I'm just barely hanging on. Um, I come here in my shame because nobody else can, can see me. Nobody else by law can talk to me. Uh, do you know who you're in front of, Lord? Do you know what I've done? If you knew what I did, you wouldn't, you wouldn't come. But you're here. You came to me. And it said that. And Jesus said to her. He started the conversation. Totally inappropriate, by the way. There were, there were rules back then that, uh, that many of the Jews followed that men didn't even talk to their own wives in public. And here's Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman alone. Absolutely forbidden. Um, you think of any of our sort of social norms that we've had in the last 50 years, and, it, and it's, it's, it's at least as strong as any of those. And she has that sort of Springsteen, is, is, could, is, could this happen? Um, do you know who I am and what I've done? Um, I hate myself every single time I come here. It's always a reminder. And he talks to her, and he describes to her this living water. And she tries to derail the conversation when he sees through the first level and says, you're right, you, you, you're not married. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with is not now. You see what she did? She went to where the mind justifies and says, hey, let's talk theology, you know, this whole worship thing. We've worshipped here for a long... She totally tried to derail the conversation. He played it for a while, but brought it back in, and then came to her and said, this, uh, uh, the one who is in front of you, I am. It's this, it's this I am statement, ego a me, which of course is Yahweh. And uh, it's, it's un, unmistakable. The one who is in front of you, I am. Uh, and then, very dramatically, the disciples return, because they've been off getting, getting lunch. Like, hey, why are you talking to her? She probably says this. And he says something. And then she leaves, goes back and says, he's here. The one. The one who knew me. And still kept talking to me the one who knew me and still loved me, the one who told me everything I ever did, the one who knew everything that I was, those places that I don't even like to know. Uh, and he let me. He let me be. And I had this moment of simultaneous, and I'll stop here, like what, what I think Louis C.K. was describing, the simultaneous experience of profound sadness, connection to that forever empty and yet, absolute freedom, freedom to be placed, in the proper sense, into a relationship back to God, to the place that's on the other side of the garden. So I'll try to find a way next week to wrap all this up, but um, that's where kind of my mind went in the last few days as I've been preparing for this. Any thoughts? I've got a couple of minutes. The forever empty or come see the man who told me everything I ever did and still talked to me. The initiation of uh, that Jesus came to her. Um, that place of I hate myself every time I come. Obviously I'm reading into that, but I think it's probably appropriate. Any thoughts?
Nothing short of a miracle. Absolutely. And he stayed with, he stayed there for two days. Um, it's what the rest of John 4, which I recommend you go read, um, and, uh, and was, uh, was there, which is a fulfillment, by the way, with scriptures pretty tight, wherein, where Luke describes going from, um, to all ends of the earth, from Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here in John 3 and 4, Judea, i.e. Jerusalem, Judaica, so she talks to he talks to Nicodemus and then Samaria that circle outside and then all of the earth and the last part of John four is a, a centurion a Gentile soldier and he heals his uh, his daughter so it's Jesus doing the very thing that Luke said we should do as well so it's kind of tight yeah it's nothing short of a miracle well and and I've never thought of it this way in this story but in that stripping bare and telling her everything she ever did and knowing her she all of a sudden felt forgiveness the, the way of the shame was lifted yeah you know like you said to go from you know hanging her head and and going to the well at the least crowded most miserable time of the day to yeah i did all these things and that's not even what matters what matters is who he was and that he knew me yeah that's right with a forgiveness implicit in his acceptance I would agree, is his forgiveness, um, which then, of course, he brings finally and fully in the great exchange of the cross, so it's not separated. I appreciate that. That's good. So, yeah. It's likely that the people told him who she was before he got there, which means he had defied them to be there. Oh, you don't want to go there at noon. You know, she's there, scandalous woman. Oh, no, you're new in town. You don't understand. And so they were probably watching. Yeah, very possible. That says that, that on the way to Samaria, and it was a common route, and Jews didn't take that road. They'd cross the Jordan to stay in Jewish land and then come back. But, but it says, um, and he had to pass through Samaria. Again, double entendre. John's the master at this, of the, of the four evangelists. He's always got these sort of spins. He had to pass through. Well, if you're looking at shortest distance between two points on a map, yes. But there's this other sense where John describes this urgency of the hour is now here, that it was a divine appointment. It was a providential appointment um, of he had to go. He knew that she would be there. I mean, humanly speaking, uh, he was told that she was there. And he was like, I know, I know, but I'm going. And he goes and, uh, and finds that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. He was there first, waiting, as it were. Uh, at the time when he sent the disciples off to buy lunch. And then he was there alone, and she approached. And then he spoke. And the stripping began. The divine, was it all in here, T.S. Eliot, the wounded surgeon plies the hardened steel which reveals the human heart. Why do I know that? This would be funny. Uh, because when Paul Zoll was here, somebody did a little needlepoint for him, uh, and then he... Uh, brought it and hung it in the men's bathroom. So. <laughs> so I read it every day for like 10 years. That's why. So. But it's the idea T.S. Eliot has in his four quartets, I assume, of, uh, of uh, the divine appointment that uh, the, the, the wounded surgeon coming and opening us up.
and providing help. So, let me pray. Lord, take this um, uh, hour, these minutes, humbly and feebly offered, Lord, and, uh, and multiply them by your grace, the grace which is your gospel, that we would know with the woman uh, at the well, the Samaritan woman, that we need not justify ourselves, um, that uh, our will need not, uh, is not what's necessary, but Lord, that you would come and give us a new heart, that you and your stripping of us, as we would meet you and be accepted by you, would find that proper displacement where we would dare believe and dare be brought to a place of trust in you that we could be known and yet loved. Uh, Lord, give us this grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.